Hi, my name is Adam Reichert, co-host of the Talk Eastern Europe podcast. I'm sure you have heard about the country of Belarus, which has been dominating international news headlines and the massive protests and violence that broke out there. To understand this country better, we have prepared a special documentary podcast series called The Story of Belarus, The Nation, Its History, and A New Hope. In this 10-episode documentary, we explore the country in greater detail. You can learn more by visiting www.neweasterneurope.eu slash Belarus or listen anywhere you find podcasts. I'm Allie J. And I'm Crystal O. And welcome to Not Your Token Black Girl, where we recover from spreading black girl magic wherever we go. From careers and cocktails to men and mental health, we're breaking it all down on what it means to wear the token crown. So if you've ever said, I'm not your token, fill in the blank, then this podcast is for you. A fun and witty show that's a little bit shady, but 100% true. It's Saturday brunch combo with the girls in a quick 20 minutes. Now let's get started. On today's episode of Not Your Token Black Girl, we're missing Allie J, but Crystal O is joined by her sister Charity to chat with Mo Green about being black in America and a member of the LGBTQ community. He serves as the Director of Public Affairs at the Illinois Department of Human Rights. Welcome, Mo. It's so glad to have hey, I'm so hey. glad to have you on the pod. We're missing Allie today, but we've got Charity and Mo um, as we dive into the LGBTQ community and Black Lives Matter. So just to kick it off, I understand you're a fellow Texan. Yes, I am. Houston, yes. Texas. All the way. I love it. <laughs> I love it. So my sister's convincer related. I know we got on the pod earlier and we just immediately vibed so i love that um <laughs> something that was in the briefing was your grandfather is a pastor which is yeah. very interesting because my sister and i grew up in a religious home um, mm-hmm. our father, very religious home yep our father was a deacon um so just to dive right in the black church historically hasn't um been all about respectability um ha- or has been all about respectability Definitely. And not accepting of uh, this community. Um, how do you, how did you come to terms when those are kind of two opposing parts of your identity? Definitely. Um, so <laughs> when I tell you, my family is very, very religious, like religious, religious. My dad was a pastor. My grandfather is bishop uh, over it. Texas and Mexico. Uh, and this is Church of God in Christ. Are you guys familiar with Church of God in Christ? Yeah. I actually so, yeah, wasn't until Mo told me about it. Um, I feel like I just like missed that part of my Black Texas childhood. But okay. it's real deep. It's mm-hmm. real, real deep. A little country. Uh, <laughs> um, so I think what gave me the power, I guess, to come out was actually I took I, I went to University of Chicago. I had left home, I was all by myself in this big ass city, and I was taking a ton of classes on identity politics where I was sort of equi- equipped with a jargon and a framework to like really like analyze um, pathologies of power, structures of power, right? And I began like with that knowledge and with that jargon, I began to sort of like um, really unpack like what it mean, what it meant to be black, what it meant to be, at that time I was, what it meant to be gay. And that's something I sort of like struggled with my entire life. 
Um, and with that sort of that jargon and these new sort of analytical tools, I went home to Texas to church. Um, and I, I found myself, <laughs> I was like, you know, the church is very respectable, but you guys aren't really practicing what you're preaching. Um, you're not practicing what you're preaching. Um, you know, and while you guys are attempting to police my own sexuality, your sexuality, based on the principles that you set forth, is you're not follow, you're you're not doing the same thing as well. Um, <laughs> so like everyone has, everybody got kids left and right, uh, pastors and deacon, uh, and deacons sleeping with people in the church. I mean, I mean these are the things that happen in church. You have choir directors that are are queens, and we love it. But everyone's sort of just like parading around like the messages that they're preaching um, are completely in sync with the life that they're living and it's not the case. So I sort of thought to myself after going home a couple of times, again, with these new analytical tools that I got from my education, why am I stressed out about my sexuality when all of this is going on? It was like, everything was like peeled back. Yes. Um, and <laughs> From that point on, uh, I've been minding my business, drinking my water, uh, and doing my work. <laughs> it was it was quite simple. <laughs> I just saw so, how silly it all was. <laughs> but that makes so much sense, right? Um, yeah. Practice, you know, no sex before marriage. Um, exactly. Reserving that um, holy act for the marital bed. Um, divorce is shunned, but we got that a marital bed of... is defiled. <laughs> it's dirty all the, way. <laughs> all the way. We got stepkids, we got other people in said marital bed. Um, but I find it so, like you said, ironic that it's all fine and dandy if it's within this confines of a heterosexual relationship. But there's exactly. so much shame um, cast on a homosexual relationship mm-hmm. when at the end of the day, I don't care how you get your O's. I'm just get, glad you're getting them. Yeah. So why does the church shun one type but but not the other? I have Is a lot of thoughts on this. With mm-hmm. you, are you are you would you consider yourself a Christian? Yes, definitely. Okay, so looking at it from that lens, how do I frame this? How do I frame this? So, do you think this is a a religious issue, or is this a cultural issue within? I think it's a. I think it's a political and social issue, and I'll tell you why. Okay. So there is a a political thinker, political scientist, and sort of academic professor. Her name was Kathy Cohen. She wrote a book called The Politics of Black, The Politics of Blackness, where she sort of puts like respectability politics to task as it relates um, to the HIV AIDS epidemic within the black community. Mm-hmm. You had all these folks literally dying uh, from HIV and AIDS and Obviously, the church is an epicenter of politics, a cultural, a cultural epicenter uh, in our community, and they were not talking about it. They were not addressing it at all. And she wanted to find out why. Why is this the case? She's a black lesbian. Um, she was, I think, she used to be the chair. Kathy Corn. She used to be the chair of the political science department in Chicago. I'm not sure what she's up to now. Fire. 
I don't know if you guys have heard of the Black Youth Project. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I actually used to write for them in college. Of uh, course you actually, did. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> of course you did. <laughs> um, but she like set that up. So this is like the huh. person who sort of wrote this book. But in the book, um, Politics of Blackness, she coins this term called secondary marginalization, where um, this term, like within marginalized communities, there is this sort of respectability politics at play where you have folks that are um, black, but also gay or woman or differently abled um, or HIV positive that are sort of left out of the political agenda. But the purpose of that there is sort of like a, a sort of a sincere effort to sort of garner, garner political and social clout. So I, you like, um, to sort of flip it inwards, you have black folks that are in black communities that are trying to gain social and economic clout in the larger white communities. And they're saying, oh, if you're gay, if you are HIV positive, you're gonna prohibit us from getting the social and economic clout that we need to survive, so we're gonna cut you out. So I think the homophobia, I say that all to say, I think the homophobia that you see in black communities is rooted in a, in a sincere sort of desire um, to function and gain clout within the larger sort of racist society. I think homophobia in black communities is rooted in racism, the racism that black folks experience in the larger community. Um, mm. The only issue is, a lot of times, you black folks say, well, we can't do this because we have these gay folks that are doing that. Or we can't do this because we have these other marginalized people that are doing that. If that are you guys following me? Yes. Perfectly. I think that what um, is also so tragic about that um, is that they're trying to get into this broader white community that doesn't even want them there. Doesn't even want them. Or if, they, say that. or if there were members of that community that wanted them, they would want them as they are. Um, that's a small, slim portion of that community, yeah. but uh, that's, it, it's mind-boggling. But essentially, secondary marginalization, it's the marginalization that you see in the larger, predominantly white society in this country, but uh, I guess specific to like different marginalized communities. Even in gay communities, you'll see secondary marginalization at play. Um, with like, if you if you're of color, if you're black, if you are differently abled, if you're HIV positive, if you're a bottom, sort of play out in sort of the larger community, right? Um, but it happens all the time in specific in specific marginalized communities where everyone's just trying to get access to a piece of the pie. There is sort of a sincere effort that I can sympathize with, but the way that it plays out is typically um, folks that look like me that are in same gender loving relationships or queer or trans um, or HIV positive being left left out, um, left out from that um, from those conversations, um, from those um, from those rooms, from those tables within our own smaller communities. Yeah. So to not to challenge, more to piggyback on, could the phobia in the Black community um, with this specific group, with this subculture of the Black community also be tied to the historical, I guess, trauma 
of black masculinity. There's a fear there, right? You stole us from Africa. Obviously, I, I am a huge history nerd. So diving into the, not the Hollywood mm -hmm. history, but the raping of black men and um, just the, is demasculinating? De whatever that word is. Demasculating, yeah. Yes, demasculating of black men is some of a fear of that trauma or I guess the results of that trauma, does that have an impact on the phobia we could see? Do you think it's just because we're all crabs in a barrel trying to get to the top or fighting for our piece of the pie? Or could a little bit of that historical trauma towards black men also be roped into it with them thinking the stereotypical um, weaker gay man? I think I think you're right. I, I think that there's an argument there, but I guess I would I would ask why would that emasculation matter? It mattered because it was coming from from white slave owners, right? Um, and again, it I it I, I hear that part, and in my mind, it just goes back to racism. There is an historical argument there, but it's it's going back to uh, the antebellum South uh, and slavery. Um, dealt to us uh, from white slave owners. Yeah. Right. Um, so I, I, I still think I still think that um, that the sort the sort of racial politics there are like really at play. Um, and um, you know, I went. Yes, we are trying to you know sort of get a piece of the pie, but like also just trying to like stay alive, stay mentally yeah. healthy. Um, and sometimes the way that folks go about doing that is like very, very problematic and it ends with um, them marginalizing other folks. Yeah. Mo, that's actually a perfect segue into your discussion about how the black community marginalizes anyone that's different, even if they're doing fantastic work. Yeah. Uh, and we know historically we have labor leaders and civil rights activists like Bayard Rustin, who wasn't someone I learned about until mm -hmm. I was in college and even more after I was in college and I actually joined the labor movement. Um, I had no idea he was gay. I knew who he was. I didn't know he mm -hmm. was gay. Um, and these are pillars of the black civil rights movement um, mm -hmm. helped make the March on Washington possible. But that entire part of their history has erased. been erased. Completely. It's completely erased. And we're seeing I wouldn't say the same level of erasure only because of the times we live in, in terms of digital access and activists. Um, but we're seeing similar levels of erasure within the Black Lives Matter movement and protests. And I'll specify a little bit deeper into that in a second with trans women. And it's kind of what you were saying earlier is that some members of the black community are saying, we want to get this, you know, we want them to stop killing us. We want, you know, equal rights, which I'm totally yeah. for, but they're like, but you have to stop talking about those trans women being murdered because that doesn't fit into our little box. And that's especially absurd because two, I'm pretty sure two out of the three women who are the founders of Black Lives Matter oh, yeah. are part of that community. Weird. It's just not yeah. Alicia, right? Um, so this is definitely not, you know, a position that those three women themselves support, but it's happening on the ground and at the protests and you see different levels of people coming out for protests against trans mm -hmm. women versus just black women versus black lives matter overall uh it's like you go with black men and then you get bumped down black women and then you've got mm -hmm. trans women must be at the very bottom of these people's minds um, they are. so 
I don't know. I guess I kind of want to hear your thoughts on the current status of the Black Lives Matter movement and if you feel like it's overall failing the LGBTQ community. Failing is a little bit of a dramatic word, but. Yeah, so I think, I don't, I, I, I don't think it's failing us um, because many of the, the, I think the Black Lives Matter organization has done a good job of like setting up organizing structures in very different parts of the city and putting pressure on folks that need, that are in positions of power, right? Um, and all the people that are on the ground doing that work um, they are all black queer folks. They're I was going to ask you, do you like, know? They're artistic, like dope, sort of like weird, but like weird. Like when I say weird, I mean in like a good way, like quirky, yeah. black queer folks. A lot of black lesbians, a lot of black trans folks, a lot of black queens, black gay men. Um, so, I mean, these are the people that are sort of out of the front that are organizing folks, organizing these 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 protests. So I don't think that you will sort of see the erasure right now. Um, I think that the, what I'll be interested to know is like sort of how, how will this story be told in history, right? Yeah. Because we're here, you can't deny that we're here. You can't deny that we, Black gay people, Black queer people are leading this movement. But typically, you know, storytelling, um, and sort of his, his, historical storytelling is done by people in power, right? People yep. who have the resources to write the books, um, to tell the story, right? And what is that gonna look like several years from now, maybe 50 years from now, I don't know. And that's what I'm interested in seeing. And I think that's where there's the most potential of sort of erasure. But as it stands now, I mean, <laughs> you, can't, you can't hide from the rainbow, baby. You, I mean, it, it, it shines bright. <laughs> uh, you know what? You're spot on. I was thinking about Charlene Carruthers, Carruthers, whose last name I always mispronounce, who is just phenomenal. She has a book out, and I had the chance to meet her once when I was working in labor in D.C. Um, and she is so small, but so mighty. Uh, and I just think of other people like her. I think of, um, what's his name? The guy who wrote How We Fight for Our Lives and all of these activists who are putting out their literature, it's like they're trying to preempt the erasure by putting yeah. out their stories as they happen, um, and which I, is amazing. And I think that's so beautiful. Like, obviously we're all black people here, right? Um, we know how to take up space when we have to. We, our very livelihoods depends on it, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think when you add in another marginalized identity on top of that, um, you really know how to how to take up space and how to like really make your your story heard. And there is just there is some power uh, within within our black gay community in this country, um, which is why we're seeing the movement that we have right now. Um, Charlene is a perfect example of that. Small lady would not cross her. She. <laughs> she she's she's just the right one you know and there are so many examples of of black other black gay folks like that that have been through it that have a fucking testimony my mm -hmm. church church boy coming out um <laughs> you can't you can't mute them you can, there's there's i just don't see any way of silencing them right now um later on i, I want to see sort of what happens later on you know once this movement is sort of if 
Uh, I hope it doesn't die down, but if it does die down, what, what sort of happens then? What will the history book say? Who's going, you know, what, what will we be taught in schools? That's what I want to know. And I think that's where there's the most potential um, for um, some misinformation. I'll say that. Yeah, I think I'm also interested in, we know that black history isn't taught well in school. Anyway, mm -hmm. I'm interested in how this is going to be taught in Sunday school. I feel like that's where growing up, we learned <laughs> most of our black history beyond mm -hmm. the surface level. There was Rosa Parks and there was Martin Luther King, you know? I'm yeah. very interested in how this movement is going to be taught in Sunday schools. I feel like especially as so, you're seeing the rise of more progressive churches that are trying to cater yeah. to these new populations. You, I feel like you have something on your heart. Oh, girl, do I. <laughs> <laughs> so my grandfather is getting very old, Bishop Morris Green Jr. He's getting very, very old. Um, and there's a sort of a lot of talks about who's going to take over his place. Um, and um, sort of like within like the inner politics of a black church in the South Side, I think my un uncle Kevin is sort of filling that space. Uh, and he's in divinity school. Um, I forget the name of the divinity school, but it's a, it's a school that's here. It's right off like the Chicago Brown Line stop. Are you guys familiar with the school? Oh, is it Moody? Yeah, he's at mm -hmm. Moody Bible Institute. Yeah. Um, and since he's since he's gone to that institution, there has been a profound um, shift in the way that he thinks, um, such that him and his wife just a couple months ago said that they have been doing a training at my grandfather's church, Lily of the Valley Church of God in Christ, pressed down, shaken together, running over, about <laughs> being supportive to other marginalized communities, people that are disabled, people that are gay, um, women and like they called me and asked they're like so um my nickname is Smokey Smokey so like what do you think about that what have been your experiences sort of being gay and also being a pastor's kid how can the church better support you this is a call that happened two months ago okay wild and mind you this is wild this is a church in Bryan College Station Texas okay oh, yeah. Kojic church. <laughs> Kojic church at that um so for people that are listening, Bryan College Station is a small town, uh, maybe 100 miles northwest of Houston, uh, very, very down home, uh, and not necessarily, it's not an epicenter of progressive thinking. Of anything. <laughs> you, got, you got Texas A&M, white military people, uh, and that's about it, you know? So yes, there are going to be problematic churches. Um, that are going to try to erase these stories, the stories of, of Black queer people that are fighting for their liberation, mm -hmm. okay? Um, but I think there's, there's just been a fundamental shift um, these past couple of months, right? Um, and the fact that I'm getting a call from an uncle, you know, who five years ago was on a pulpit preaching sort of, you know, anti-gay things It's calling me talking about how can this church be more inclusive to gay folks. I think that's indicative of sort of a, a, a tide that's going through our country um, where these things hopefully, you know, sort of will be taught. Um, we'll see, fingers crossed. <laughs> so I'm curious to know more about you, Mo. How was, what was your journey like? You, I know you left Texas, you went to Chicago, you came back with all of these 
new progressive thoughts and ideas. What was your journey to living your truth with your down home, Southern, conservative, Christian mm -hmm. family? I think, honestly, it was just getting away, which is a story that you hear from, from a lot of gay people. They have to get, get away. Um, they go to a big city. Uh, a lot of times it's Houston or Atlanta. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I like to go to Houston and cut up a little bit here and there. I know um, you do. I know you do. <laughs> I, know. I think it was just, it was like, yes, I, I, I got all these new progressive ideas. Uh, I was learning a lot. I had these, this jargon to like really like deconstruct sort of society and norms around me. But it was also sort of developing a community for myself with people that would support me. Right. That's all that's all people need to be themselves. You want a community. You want to feel loved. You want to feel supported. Um, and luckily, like on the south side of Chicago, at East Chicago, I found that community. Um, I found a bunch of, you know, progressive thinking uh, gay folks uh, from New York, from L.A. Um, and once I sort of had that, I was kind of like, you know, F y'all. I don't I mean, I love y'all y'all my family um but this is also this is a chosen family that i have mm -hmm. here uh it's the same thing like even like uh on pose you have all i mean you have all um uh, all these folks on this show that were you know tossed aside by their family if your family doesn't want you you go pick a new one mm -hmm. and they will empower you to be your most your true and most authentic self and that was very much what happened to me in Chicago. I met some amazing people, people that I'm still close with now. Um, and I, you know, I had some very, um, some long and difficult conversations when I was sort of dealing with my sexuality and dealing with um, my spirituality and my religion that was telling me, no, um, you need to be straight. You need to date this girl. You need to get married uh, and have some, I want some grandbabies. Um, <laughs> um, and I, you know, I just, I found, I found my, I found a chosen family. They gave me the power really, um, to be my true self. Uh, and once I had that support going back to Texas, uh, and, and coming out to my family, um, didn't seem like a, a, a you know, a, a tall order. Yeah. It didn't seem like that. Mo, I feel like we could have a completely separate conversation with you that I would absolutely love to have. Um, I'm not a member of the LGBTQ community, but I am a huge ally. Um, mm -hmm. So I don't want to take away from this conversation, but just something about black kids leaving their homes to go somewhere else to become their full selves. Um, I obviously didn't have the exact same path as you, like I said, but there's just so much about going away and realizing that you have so much more to you and that people exactly. will love you for you. You untap all of these emotions that you didn't even know were really existed. And all of this and this power. Yes. Yeah. And it's so it's so funny like going back and seeing folks that are still home and didn't necessarily leave. There's just a profound difference in the way that that we function, the way that we think. Mm -hmm. Um even some family members that are much older than myself will like plan some things and they still have to like they want but I was talking to my mom about this. Like we have one family member that felt the need to check in with who's older, who's like 50 years old. And we were going to plan this family reunion. He's like, well, let me just 
let me check with um let me check with my mom first let me do this yeah. like me i've been on my set i've been on my own for 10 years i pay my own bills if i'm <laughs> if i make a decision it's it's sort of happening i'm gonna talk i talk to my mom me and her are very close but i don't by any means need her approval grown ass man. which is very very wayward <laughs> from the way that black southern kids i mean exactly. i'm speaking from my universe but that is extremely wayward behavior yes. and i remember having such a conflict about this as i very similarly you went off to school started figuring mm-hmm. out all of these things that didn't actually align with who i was and being worried that by being wayward people would think that I was too white. I was like, this is all stuff that white yeah. people do. And I remember having mm-hmm. these first conversations with when I first started going into therapy, like 2014, being like, yeah. I don't know if I can do this. People are going to think I'm like those crazy white kids who are always, you know, and I- What's crazy, they secretly, they secretly admire you though. The crazy white kids? No, no. family back oh, in Texas. I was like, no, like they're just that stayed at home. But- the kids like, it's, Oh, I love that this conversation is going, you'll notice that I've been more, I've been quieter this podcast Uh because last season towards the end, we started diving into what is an ally. And one of our um, guests said, the role of an ally is to shut up and to listen and to Mm -hmm. absorb the lessons and to apply them. So I've just been taking in everything that you've been saying. But in this conversation, I am the kid that stayed behind. I still live in my hometown. I went to Austin for school um, where I met Allie, my best friend, co-host of the pod. I went to Louisiana for grad school, kicked off my career and came back. And now as a married mother, I'm like, I don't want to be that hometown girl. And there's nothing yeah. wrong with Dallas. There's Dallas nothing is wrong with great. Um, I love having, you know, my mom here. It's so easy to get a break from my badass kid. Um, she's not bad she's perfect (laughs) she's adorable (laughs) but um my husband and i are getting the urge to go out and find our own way and granted we're now 32 and 35 but we it is never too late it's never too late late. and we are looking at bigger cities like chicago and new york because staying with all of us being texan i think you can understand this staying in this very conservative country. I mean, I live across the street from a horse farm. Okay. Stereotypical Texas life. Mm-hmm. I don't want my, my progressive thinking, the things that I've been exposed to in the way that the adult woman that I've grown into to be stifled and not that there's yeah. anything yeah. wrong with tradition. I think it's important to bring that with you, you know, yeah. your foundation, wherever you go, but it is a delicate balance of my foundation is solid and that's part of who I am but I also need to go and be surrounded with and raise my daughter around different cultures, different ethnicities, different walks of life. And I'm going to admit this, I was battling whether I admit this or I don't admit this. As we were looking for a guest on this podcast, I realized my circle of influence, I could find people of different races, different genders, different ages, but I couldn't find anyone that I legitimately could call out to in the LGBTQ community. And I pride myself on having a very diverse group of people around me. And I was sad when I mm-hmm. realized that. And I said, I need to do better. I need to do better for myself. 
Um, and it's not that I'm a bad person. I just need to be more intentional because if I really am going to be an ally, I need people in these different groups to hold challenge to yeah. challenge me um, and to help pour into my daughter. My daughter um, is a going to be a black woman, but she's got a white German grandmother and a black Nigerian grandfather and two African-American grandparents on my side. And um, her father isn't from here. So she's got so much cultural diversity, but I also yeah. make sure she grows up with friends whose lives are different than hers, whether that be socioeconomically, yeah. the people they love, the religions they practice. And I think mm -hmm. that is how you can have a strong foundation and build on top of that for the generations to come. Exactly. I don't want my daughter to sit around and say, I don't have a single friend in this marginalized category. I don't want that to be her story at yeah. two years old. And I, I think that was the, the beauties of going away to college. I just, you met, they're just like, yes, class was like fun. It was hard. They dragged me at that school. I'll tell you now. They dragged me through the Mo is being modest, but I <laughs> went back and stalked him after we became friends. And Mo graduated cum laude or magic yes. cum laude <laughs> from literally one of the best universities in the world. So yeah, they dragged him, but he dragged them back. So yes. Um, but I think most of the learning. Thank you, Charity. I appreciate that. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> most of the learning was done outside the classroom, as it often outside is. Outside the classroom. It was, I was meeting folks from literally all over the world. Some people from the South side of Chicago, some people from Louisiana, some people from Santiago, Chile. Um, they had all these very like different experiences. Um, and I just, I soaked it all up. I love that. I want to bring this back. I took us off on a tangent, so I, I know, apologize. I and I went there right with you. <laughs> we, were also, we were all <laughs> there. Okay. Somehow related. This is what, I mean, but th this is what gay people do. They leave. <laughs> They make their own chosen family and they use that family to empower themselves. Exactly. That's it's, what I was it's the good way. To. It really is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mo, if you had to give advice to, you know, not necessarily yourself because hindsight's 2020, but um, if you were ever to go back to U Chicago's campus to like speak as an alum and a young gay man or a lesbian woman, not I want to call them. If you were to come back to well, I'm, I'm Texas. Young, or Texas. But I'm saying okay. there is a little black boy or a little yeah. black girl yeah. who is gay and is starting out on the journey you were on. Because U Chicago is an easy one. Well, mm -hmm. I mean, he still had finding of himself to do at U Chicago, but you're 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 right. I sure did. I was in a whole ass relationship with the woman. I, I wasn't gonna call you out. <laughs> I was like, I know. I'll let the, I'll let the listeners know I was going through it. Yeah. Confusion. I was, yeah. <laughs> I was deep in confusion. Yeah. Oh, poor her. Yeah, poor, poor her. <laughs> pretty girl. Big, oh, was gorgeous she pretty woman. Mm -hmm. Gorgeous mm -hmm. Nigerian woman. Okay, I see you. <laughs> I'm over you. <laughs> <laughs> but I was, I just, what can I say? Yeah. I'm like, man, I'm sorry. Don't and she, apologize. And when she when she found out, um, obviously she wasn't happy, and she she you know she let me have it. I was like, "You're right. You're right. You're you're completely right. I apologize." Uh, in my defense, I really didn't know what what the hell I was up to, um, but 
we're here now. Um, and how do we move forward? But I, separately. I, I, I <laughs> separately. <laughs> but I had, I, I had, I had a lot of learning to do. I had, a, I was, I was really a dumb kid in college. I had a lot of learning to do. I was very confused. Uh, I'll never go back. <laughs> you won't get me. No. <laughs> <laughs> you won't get me. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt you, Charity. <laughs> no, no, no. I was wanting to hear from you exactly what Crystal helped me say, but, um, but better. How do you? What would you say to someone? And you can pick what stage of life you think you would want to like talk to someone if you know you felt like they wanted some guidance or. This is such a hard question. Oh my gosh. Put you on the spot. You really did, girl. I know. I can what never answer these types of questions. I would tell them, and I think I think it just comes back to what we've been talking about. Uh, if I was talking to a young black kid in the church um, that's struggling to find himself, um, I would tell him, get away, go away. Whatever you have to do, whatever, whatever pathway that you can find, go away, go away. Because um, there's, and like, yes, you can, you can find yourself at home. And I have no doubt that if I stayed home, I, I, I would have found myself, it would have taken me a little bit longer. Um, but there's something about being on your own and not just being able to uh, go back to mom's house, right? When you're, when you're forced to be independent and um, not only independent financially, but also be an independent thinker because you're away. Um, there is a profound development that happens in that process. Um, that is priceless. It's priceless. Um, so if I'm back at Lily of the Valley, Church of Grand Christ, you just can't join in. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I would tell a little confused child like myself, go away. Whether it is to, to Austin, like a couple hours away, or to Chicago, go away. Find yourself elsewhere. Because you cut out a lot of noise when you get away from home. Um, go away. That's, that's, that's my advice. Mo, this is my last question, and I'm going to let Crystal chime in. Um, on some, some, some subconscious level, do you feel like your soul, you're like, and I, I'm like a, a very spiritual person. Like, I very much believe that our souls are tell us what we need even if we're not listening and it'll mm -hmm. manifest in different weird ways whether it's an anxiety attack or you know you never know but <laughs> have those <laughs> have those um do you think that your when you were going, <laughs> uh when you were going through the college application process um do you think that your soul was telling you go you know i feel like when i was applying to colleges my mom asked me like why are you only looking at school so far away and i didn't have an answer <laughs> But I think my so, soul was telling me, go. Do you think very subconsciously? So a lot of props on that question. Mm -hmm. It was interesting for me. If I think that if I was in Texas when I applied to college, I think I would have stayed in Texas. Mm. But, and I told Crystal this earlier, my parents decided to take my black ass to Omaha, Nebraska, That's which true. was a hot ass mess. <laughs> um, it was a hot mess. And mm -hmm. like, Houston, like, and obviously Dallas as well, mm -hmm. you know, 
obviously, like, we're that sense is a very conservative state, but you have cultural epicenters in Dallas and Houston. In my school in Houston, um, you know, we had over 20 languages spoken, and I grew up in like very multicultural spaces. And then on the weekends, it would just be a bunch what? of black people playing the organ at church. Um, <laughs> so to go from that to Omaha, Nebraska, uh, where I my high school had 3,600 people and two less than 2% were black. And everyone was looking at me like I was some alien and asking me the most inappropriate questions <laughs> about my body, about oh, my physical it. ability, about my intellect. Someone literally asked me, so, oh, what are you doing in honors English? Like they were confused why I was there because I'm smarter Did than you, you Becky. <laughs> oh, I read, I read that hussy down for filth and shame because I'm smarter than you. Yes. Because I'm smarter it's than you. Filth and shame. <laughs> filth and shame. Yeah. The gall and the gumption. How dare you? <laughs> Get out of my But face. are you in the right classroom is the question. Uh, uh, um, <laughs> she's, her life is not quite well. So lift her up in prayer. Um, but done. that was my experience. Your choice. <laughs> <laughs> so... I was happy to get the hell out of Nebraska. There are some great people there. I mean, I have developed some long-lasting relationships, but Nebraska was not a part of my narrative. So I, <laughs> it was very easy for me to keep going. I did not apply to one school in Nebraska. Did not. And I've yeah. actually applied to a bunch of, this is how, <laughs> it's funny because I, I knew I was gay, but it took me a while to like really accept it. I applied to a bunch of very gay liberal arts colleges. Like Berkeley? Uh, Berkeley, Reed, Grinnell, Carleton, Middlebury College. Williams, I applied to like... Carleton and Middlebury. <laughs> I wanted to go somewhere. I was like, I need to get out of here. Hey, and I need to go somewhere where I can find my community. Mm-hmm. I always love like weird, like hipster people. I just like wanted to, to, to drink and read some philosophers and do gay things. Uh, <laughs> and I knew it was going to take me a while to accept that. Um, so I was like, you know what, let me just find a place that's going to support me. And those are the types of places that I applied to. They weren't in Nebraska. My yeah. black ass? I think the <laughs> fuck not. <laughs> so your soul was still <laughs> telling you where it needed to be. Yeah. Um, but I think if I was in Texas, I think I would have I been in Houston. I think I would have gotten very comfortable. I probably would have tried to become a pastor uh, and follow on my, my... I would go to that church, though. Oh, hell yeah. That's the oh, church. We would, usher, we, would, we would usher in the spirit of the living God. Okay? I was like, that's good. <laughs> um, but it's, it's funny how life works out. I, I, I'm glad, as much as I hated those three years in Nebraska, I'm glad that I lived there. Um, because it brought me to Chicago. And like literally next month, it'll be 10 years here. 10 years in Chicago. Living my gay best life. I love it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Mo, thank you so much for joining thank us. You. you are a gem and a jewel, and it has been such a pleasure just learning from you, soaking up your experiences, and I hope our listeners um, have enjoyed it as much as we have. Yes. Thank you guys for having me. I appreciate it. This is Allie J. And I'm Crystal Lowe, and that's it for this week. 
Be sure to tune in next Sunday at 12 p.m. Central for another episode of Not Your Token Black Girl. And also, be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google. And follow me at Basic Alley on Instagram. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at the Crystal O.